And even though the policies and the church response doesn't seem to line up with what we see God doing in the scriptures, it does not mean that God is still not responsible in steering glory for himself and for his people in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the torn church issues, in the midst of the politics of it all. God is still overseeing, calling a people to himself, birthed out of brokenness and suffering. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites, episode 10. I'm Jacob Mel. This is the final part of a sequence beginning in episode 7 that seeks to go beyond the soundbites of the hour by looking at what's transpired since President Trump issued an executive order known as the travel ban in January 2017. We began this series with a story from an Iraqi Christian woman who was displaced in the 90s. Then we heard from current refugees and asylum seekers overseas, and we weeded through some issues of policy and infrastructure. Now we bookend it all with a message that Daniel Yang delivered at the 2018 Refugee Highway Partnership North America Roundtable. As a second-generation Hmong American, born shortly after his family arrived in the U.S. as refugees, Daniel speaks with power, precision, and a sense of lived authority when it comes to grappling with how to reconcile the agendas of man and the purposes of God. Let's get started. So I want to invite you to stand up as we read this passage together to honor the Lord's word, but I also want to honor the 635 million people in this world as we read this passage, asking God to give us fresh eyes to see their situation. This is the word of the Lord through Isaiah. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east And from the west, I will gather you, and I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears." Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. 
Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. And now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness. I will make rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Father, we come to your written word because it points us to the word incarnate Jesus. And we need him more than ever. Our church needs him more than ever and our world needs him more than ever. Help us to see your son in this passage in our culture, and in the work that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. You're uh, likely familiar with these passages, but for many, uh, like my family, these verses about passing through the waters and walking through the fire, they conjure up literal images of swimming the Mekong Delta and fleeing communist gunfire in Laos, but in its original context, the promise given in verse 19 of God doing a new thing is offered only on the cusp of several years of invasion and national tragedy. Israel had endured several Pearl Harbor moments, several JFK assassinations, several 9-11 moments, several clown presidents, I mean kings, um, all strung together one after the other. And if you study these moments carefully, you'll realize that they were profound moments of pain and lost. Lost years, lost relationship, lost hope, lost identity, tremendous confusion. And during these years, Israel was being redefined. They were being redefined as a people, and they had to come to grips with who they had become. And as much as we hate tragedy, as much as we hate loss, there's nothing that forces a people a nation to the point where it has to ask itself, who are we and do we like who we are? There's nothing that does that more than tragedy. Tragedy makes us real with ourselves. But in the midst of loss and confusion before the story is even being done written, before all the sins are even being done committed, before there's full repentance, stories like this particular narrative, promises are given to us before the future is even here. The idea of God doing a new thing is a metaphor for a theological reality. It's a metaphor for something that's going to happen And it says this, regardless of your personal and corporate responsibility for suffering in the world, none of that suffering is meaningless and none of it is irredeemable by God. It's only in narratives like this one, which fill half of the Christian scriptures, that you find a theological and a philosophical treatise that says this, 
that when you're suffering and loss is humanly impossible to bear, that suffering is being transformed into glory. The degree of pain indicates the degree of glory. It's easy for the atheist to refute the new seminary-trained pastor who is trying to refute uh, secular uh, psychology with presuppositional apologetics. Atheists, they, that's red meat for them. It's more difficult for an atheist to refute a refugee who has endured more than anyone can imagine and yet still calls on the name of the Lord Jesus as their Savior and God, a gracious Father. And for the last decade, I've personally been working through a theological concept of what it means to live my life as if I am a part of this new thing that God is doing through refugee families in America, such as the Hmong, that I am one degree of transformed glory that first started out as profound pain, that I am an answered prayer and a promise that many have been praying decades long ago. It's a theological journey to understand myself and the missional purpose of what refugee immigrant communities have showed up on the shores of North America from war-torn countries mined 40 years ago among the, the, the very first groups that came to North America. We were seeking political asylum, but instead we discovered God's eternal purpose. But I'm realizing that it's impossible to discover the meaning of this magnitude of suffering in just one generation. It takes multiple generations to get to the other side of the pain. My family came to the U.S. in 1979. We settled in right outside of Chicago in the Quad Cities. They survived a war that was later uh, labeled the Secret War in Laos, which was simultaneously being fought uh, in, during the Vietnam War, only the Vietnam War was televised. Later, Clinton would release all of the documents that explained all that was happening uh, in Laos. My dad, who's here with me tonight, my dad and other Hmong men, some as young as 12 and 13, were recruited by the CIA. and allowed royal army as guerrilla fighters to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail and to rescue down American pilots for a war that still today nobody knows why it happened. Uh, they were U.S. allies, though, and when the Americans pulled out of Vietnam and Laos in 1975, that left them all stranded in their own land and as victims of ethnic cleansing by the hands of the communist regime. Conservative estimates say that 50,000 Hmong people died uh, in the war. And there were only 300,000 Hmong people in that country. It's been 40 years since the war and our immigration to America, and since then many Hmong people have achieved the American dream, but 40 years isn't long enough to process the trauma they've experienced. And to be honest, being an evangelical Christian doesn't compensate for it at least not all of it. My oldest sister, born in the midst of war, can still remember traveling for days in the jungles of Laos, fleeing communist gunfire, begging my dad to stop and find food. In one story she tells, she remembers being my dad's back as they were hiding from the communist soldiers, and she saw a turtle and asked my dad, are turtles edible? And my dad says, I don't know, but they found out that night. 
There are three separate times that my dad was reported dead or believed to be dead. You can only imagine how my mom felt each time he left for deployment. My dad's oldest sister, Shua, had 14 children. And between sickness and avoiding capture and things parents should never have to do to crying children in, in the middle of the night, only four are still living. And my dad's older brother, while fleeing with the family, heard a click underneath his foot. He told my dad to keep the family moving ahead, and my dad knew it was a landmine, and after a short argument and tearful instructions from my uncle to take care of his then four-year-old son, my dad agreed to lead the family from then on. After they made some distance, there was a quiet explosion, and the family stopped long enough for dad to return to the spot to bury his brother's remains. And he raised my cousin as my oldest brother. Suffering like this can't be made sense in just one generation. 40 years isn't long enough to process why, God, would you allow these things to happen? In the midst of profound loss, profound pain, it still feels too early and and too cheap to say it's a blessing in disguise. You can try, but as somebody who has tried, admittedly, it feels like pretending sometimes that there's a blessing waiting ahead. The pain is still that real. About eight years ago, uh, that blessing started to feel a little bit more like reality. I was invited to travel to North Vietnam. Did you catch that? In 2010, and I was nervous that my father would think something about that, and North Vietnam was considered the head of the snake by my people, and I was going there to attend a special education conference held by the Vietnamese government in Ho Chi Minh University in an NGO that we had been working with, and I also wanted to visit the growing church of Hmong people in a northern mountains of Vietnam, where over 500,000 Hmong people come to Christ, the fastest growing Christian group in Vietnam through shortwave radio. And I just wanted to be in their space. But I didn't want to go in spite of my dad's experience and didn't want to hurt him by helping a government that was partly to blame for the deaths of our family and our people. So I phoned him, and I don't think he knew what was going on in my heart, uh, but I remember his response. He said this in Hmong. He might not even recall the conversation, but he said, you should go, and all that's in the past. God taught us to love our enemies, and everything's changed. He's brought us to the U.S. for a reason, and we can help those who are even less fortunate than ourselves. And at that moment, I understood something very profound, that Jesus makes a difference in the way you understand your past. That Jesus is the new thing that was happening to them all. Through Isaiah, God commands a war-torn people that he hasn't forgotten them. He says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Do you not have spiritual eyes for what I'm doing? 
I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is promising Israel that there is a way through and that there is meaning on the other side, that although what's in front of them is famine and loss and the fields will soon be filled with grain, the land will flow with plenty of wine and oil. It hints at the reward that Job received for suffering so intensely. It hints at the story of Israel entering the promised land after wandering for 40 years, and it points to a banquet that a broken and wayward son will one day have with this loving father who is anxiously awaiting him. There's a phrase in this passage that if you comb through it, it, it'll trip you up because God is saying that I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And I'll say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. In verse 14, he actually says that he will send them to Babylon. And when you read a passage like this, you have the only impression you have is that God did, this, God did these things to Israel. God caused the diaspora. God caused the suffering. Well, I think more precisely, it's not so much that he caused it as much as he is taking responsibility over it and for it. God is taking responsibility over suffering and displacement. And in order for God to transform suffering, he must take responsibility over suffering. God takes responsibility in order to oversee and maneuver the process of suffering and evil in order to steer them towards glory and redemption. To say it another way, God enters into the greatest pain to feel it with us. But not only that, God enters into the situations that give us pain almost as if he's causing it himself. And often to the point where we're blaming him for it, but only so that we can see him in the pain. It's like a nurse administering a, a, a cure to a child, and, but all that you can see is the father standing behind the nurse approving of the syringe entering into the son's arm. The refugee's initial response might be, God, why are you behind this? God, why did you do this? Eventually, in Christ, it becomes God. You do this. You did this. If you only see evil and the pain, it's impossible to have faith. But if you see God steering the evil in the pain, then faith is possible. And there's no place in history where this is more crystal clear than when Jesus dies on the cross. It's very difficult to explain why God allows suffering and evil to happen. But when Jesus, the Son of God, dies on the cross, God includes himself in the suffering. And for whatever reason why God allows suffering to happen, it's not because he doesn't understand it and it's not because he's not experienced it himself. It's not because God does not suffer. God suffers greatly. Suffering can be so great that it transcends our human capacity to accept the idea of a good God. That's why some rationally minded people cite suffering as a reason for why they object the 
existence of a good God. And yet for another set of people, profound suffering actually drives them towards faith and not from it. And to them, suffering breaks through. Suffering breaks through our rationality to see a good God who is transforming profound pain into profound glory. You see, in the death of Jesus, uh, God doesn't simplify the problem of evil and suffering. He actually complexifies the problem. How does he complexify it? Because he enters into the suffering. He doesn't remove the suffering you think he would because he has the ability to do it. He doesn't mask the suffering because he has all of the healing power that if he could, he, he would have done it. He just makes the problem worse, harder to understand by just placing himself in the middle of it. He just complexifies it. Through his son, Jesus condemns, or God condemns himself. God exiles himself. God went to Babylon. God became a migrant. God was displaced in Christ. That's why we can say God is the God of refugees. That's why we can say that God is behind it all. That God takes responsibility over it all. And even though the, re- the policies and the church response doesn't seem to line up with what we see God doing in the scriptures, it does not mean that God is still not responsible in steering glory for himself and for his people in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the torn church issues, in the midst of the, the, the politics of it all. God is still overseeing and calling a people to himself, birth out of brokenness and suffering. How else do you think Jesus would willingly die if he hadn't known that his father was behind it all? He wouldn't have. If Jesus was not 100% sure that his good father was behind the cross, I don't think he would have done it. You realize that Jesus in his flesh, he had left everything in heaven that every response that Jesus gave those 33 years was a human fleshly response. He didn't exercise his divine power in order to make his day-to-day choices. How else in his flesh could he have obeyed God the Father if he didn't know God the Father was good and was behind the pain and the suffering? How else can we make sense of suffering and displacement unless we know the Heavenly Father is behind it all. Did God send his son to die on the cross? Yes. Does knowing lessen the pain? No. In fact, it hurts even more. But knowing that God is overseeing the suffering increases your faith. That's my son. Hey, buddy. Third generation. Because a child can trust their father in the midst of pain. Maybe even in the midst of a sermon to interrupt it and say hi. Pain is a distraction from your purpose, but a father's love is a distraction from pain. 
So Jesus cries out before he dies, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's the faith. That's the relationship. That's the perspective Jesus came to give to us in the midst of suffering. And that perspective is what allowed my dad to be at peace with me working with the communist government. And that is the perspective that each and every family that you minister to needs to have. That's the greatest hope you can give. A short while after arriving in the U.S. through the sponsorship of the uh, Lutheran Church, uh, churches in uh, East Moline through Lutheran Social Services, any LSS people here by any chance? Okay, a few of you. Thank you for the work that you've done. During those early years, nobody, there were no Hmong people in Illinois. We were the first, and so we didn't have any friends, and dad didn't know how to drive, and, you know, mom didn't know how to turn on a stove. It was Lutheran Social Services that taught them how to do all that and how to pay a bill. This is before the, this is all church politics now, but this is before the LCMS and the ELCA split, so I don't know if it was a conservative or a liberal church that had sponsored us. I really don't know, but dad came to Christ in that church, so I'm assuming it was a gospel-preaching church. At age 40, 41, my dad became the first believer in the history of our family lineage. To my dad and my family, America is not the new thing that God is doing. Jesus is the new thing. Jesus is the way in the wilderness. Jesus is the river in the desert. And there's pain that Jesus endured that set us up to accomplish more of God's purpose. And there's pain that many of us have to endure to set up the next generation to accomplish more of God's purpose. This paradigm for living, which we call the gospel, is the only hope that can restore the dignity of the people that you serve. It's the only hope that can restore the dignity of the people all across the globe that face displacement today. And it's only in the gospel that suffering of this magnitude can be transformed into glory that fulfills God's eternal purpose. And I want to encourage you as a body, as a coalition, as an alliance of people that serve the displaced. It's discouraging at times when this past year we settled one of the, what was it? You know the numbers, 27,000, which is the least that we've settled since 9-11. I know it's discouraging for you, but I want to encourage you and let you know that everything that you do in Christ, even your own pain, your own personal transformation, those things will end up in glory. It'll end up in glory and it'll glory given to God the Father and glory returned to you. And it's the only hope for the people that you serve, that they'd be dignified, that they have a future. I just want to encourage you as you continue to advocate, as you continue to resettle, as you continue to teach people the basics of what it means to assimilate in a country like U.S. and Canada, that you put the hope of the gospel in front of people and allow God to do the only thing that even you can't do. 
And that's to genuinely transform hearts to know God is Father and to know God is good. Can we pray together? Father, for decades we've prayed for a revival in North America. Maybe because we thought we saw it in the 18th century and, or we saw it in the 19th century or maybe it happened early in the 20th century in Southern California or different places and we thought those things were revival and, and they were, they were, Holy Spirit was involved. It boggles my mind that the average refugee coming to North America has a higher percentage of being an evangelical pastor than they do of any kind of terrorist affiliation or whatever the rhetoric says. Are you sending revival through the least of these around the world? God, I just have to ask, is that what you're doing? Because we didn't see it. Our church growth techniques couldn't predict it. You're not just sending refugees and asylum seekers. You're sending a mission force. So, God, we just say more of it. We just welcome it. We don't want to hinder it. You know the pace in which this country runs, and you can increase and you can decrease. We want to be faithful to it. Some of the greatest gospel preachers that have ever come from North America don't even know you yet. We just pray for them, that they would have high levels of compassion because of the places that they come from. And we just pray that, Lord, as we continue to respond as a North American church, that you would see our attempts and where we fail, that Christ, that you would fill in the gaps. Let us be a church that advocates justice, but not just for the sake of justice. Justice because there's only one true justice that was given to us, and that's what you facilitated on the cross. And God, I pray that that would be the motivator for all that we do so that we can love and serve the marginalized without ever hoping that man could repay us. And so, Lord, I just bless these agencies and the leaders here in this room today that they would know the significance of their work and that with every hour and every minute spent, that you amplify that and you multiply that way beyond that they could ever imagine. So we thank you for that. And we thank you for your word tonight. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Give his eyes to perceive it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Local Community Partners, and Abounding Service. Brett Ratliff mixed the episode. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music.